patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host and the co-author of our book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare, Dr. Naran Alajba. Good evening. In our book, we discuss the tragic case of Alexis Ochoa, a 19-year-old woman who died when a nurse practitioner failed to diagnose the blood clot in her lungs. The nurse practitioner was unprepared to treat emergency room patients. There was no physician on site, even though the hospital advertised that they were physicians 24-7. Today, we are joined by attorney Travis Dunn. He's one of the lead attorneys who helped Alexis's family win a major financial settlement against Mercy Health Systems. Mr. Dunn, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. And we really want to thank you for all the help you gave us in writing the book. And I was just wondering if you could start out by just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in litigation. Sure. I always wanted to be a litigator. And there's lots of lawyers, lots of things lawyers do, lots of important things. But for me, a lawyer was always a litigator. I started working for a medical malpractice defense firm in law school. And I worked there for 10 years after I graduated and then decided to make the change to the the good guys, the, no offense, uh, to the other side and joined one of the firms that eventually merged to be the firm I work with now. So I would start by saying no offense taken, of course, because <laughs> we love you guys and you and Glendale Nix are sort of heroes of ours because of the work you did on this case. And of course, most of the public doesn't know. And I, what I've been dying to talk to you about for a really long time is what a hard time Mercy gave you. And, and I think that's some element that a lot of people don't understand. They think you just ask for records and you get records. And what I ended up leaving out of the book because it was too convoluted to explain really was this deletion of medical records after she died. And that's something we really haven't talked about before, but you you really have kind of opened up this uh, opportunity to talk about it because just to let the story, at least of the, the public, so they know, Essentially, after Alexis died, the admitting uh, nurse practitioner, the hospitalist and her supervising hospitalist reached out to uh, medical, I guess, risk or the risk management people and said, you know, what do we do about this? We, we recognize that this nurse practitioner missed all this in the ER. We documented it and they elected to delete the record entirely. And so there's probably more to it. But if you could tell me a little bit more about sort of, I guess, a couple things, how to get into mercy and how to get these records and how to find this kind of stuff out. Well, I think that is one of the two biggest hurdles we have to overcome today in these type of lawsuits and this sort of litigation. And in this particular case, I can tell you the facts and you can make your own assumptions or opinions about what happened. But Alexis was admitted by a nurse practitioner was or was seen by a nurse practitioner in the emergency room. Then she called another nurse practitioner to admit her into the hospital and told her that she had an elevated heart rate some other information. And then the second nurse practitioner said, okay, go ahead and admit her. Now the second nurse practitioner, the hospitalist, uh, or the, the nurse practitioner who was assigned to be the hospitalist was at home at about 3 a.m. And she made a quick note in the electronic medical record. The next morning she gets to the hospital. She reviews the actual chart and she sees that Alexis had basically every textbook sign and symptom of a pulmonary embolism. That that information wasn't communicated to her at 3 a.m. in the morning. So she makes a note. We called it the CYA note, where she indicates, she she lists all the symptoms that are in the medical record at that time. 
and specifically notes that she was not informed of these signs and symptoms at the time that Alexis was admitted. Then her supervising physician comes in to, to work that morning. He looks at the record. We know that from the audit trail. He then sends an email to risk management that's entitled urgent contact me immediately. Then the, the um, 8 a.m. note is deleted and then he signs off on the record. So we have the original. So that leaves the original note that didn't provide any symptoms. And then the hospital's final note where she was transferred to OU, omitting the note, deleting the note that lists all the signs and symptoms that were present that the second nurse practitioner was not informed of. And the only reason we knew about that was because we had a judge that was willing to look at the evidence and listen to argument, and Mercy was ordered to produce the metadata, the audit trail, the audit log. We got that. That's when we realized there was a lot of information that was missing, specifically this one note. Had we not had that judge, had we had a different judge that had a different slant, had a different opinion, a different interpretation, we wouldn't have got that. That was a pretty key piece of evidence. And the same judge also gave us access to some of the hospital's investigation, which a lot of judges wouldn't have. And that was also another key piece of evidence in the case. But without that audit trail, without the metadata from the electronic medical record, we would never have known that there were pieces of information, pieces of medical record and entire nurses' notes that were deleted. Now, why do you think hospitals are so, or judges, or and I don't know that judges are, but why do you think so often it could go the other way and that hospitals are so protected? <clears throat> there, I mean, there's two different, really, let's talk about the medical records first, the, the metadata. People, judges don't understand. And a lot of times it's our job to educate them on what the federal law is, what the state law is, and the fact that the privileges don't apply to protect the medical record itself and the underlying information in the electronic medical record. In Oklahoma, there's not a lot of, there's not any state law that provides guidance. And so you have to look to federal law to provide persuasive authority to the court. And a lot of judges, you know, they have 40 cases on their docket and they don't want to take the time. And and there's a natural kind of predisposition to protect the hospital's privileges. And so you really have to lay it out black and white and show them. And, and it's getting easier. You know, this case was several years ago. And the judges in Oklahoma County and Oklahoma are a lot more willing to provide that audit trail information now than they were. Back then, it was a very rare thing for us to get that. And it took a lot of work. And in fact, the investigative part of it went all the way to the Oklahoma Supreme Court on a writ. And <clears throat> we had to put the whole tr- case on hold while the Supreme Court looked at it and go argue there and then come back down and proceed with litigation. So things are easier now, but as far as the electronic medical record aspect, you just really have to go step one, two, three, four, and lay out the federal HIPAA regulations to the local courts and convince them that this is actually the property of the patient and they should have access. You know, Travis, when you talk about, you know, the good side, the bad side, you know, it's it's so it's such an interesting thing because, you know, from my perspective as a physician, you know, I don't want to see any doctors, nurse practitioners or anybody get into trouble. But on the other hand, 
this seems to be sometimes the only way that there's accountability. And I think what's so fascinating about this case in particular is that you and your firm were able to show the facts, which were that Mercy had a systematic approach of hiring nurse practitioners to work in positions that they were not supposed to work in. And you actually were able to show that it had to do with cost savings, that patients were being deceived. Did you have any idea that any of these things were happening before you had this case? No. Uh, well, I mean, yes, we knew that there were that there were mid-level practitioners that were being used to save money. But, you know, I didn't know a whole lot about those practitioners or their scope of practice or their license or anything. And when this case came in, we didn't even know it was about a nurse practitioner because this particular nurse practitioner represented herself to the family as a physician. We had to inform the family. I remember very clearly telling Alexis's boyfriend that the person that he'd been dealing with that he thought was a doctor was in fact a nurse practitioner. And this was, you know, the year after she died, he had no idea. So we really approached it, the case from um, the perspective of understanding that nurse practitioners have a role to play in the emergency room. And that even though this nurse practitioner made a lot of mistakes, she should never have been in that position. You know, she was credentialed. She was given assignments. She was, she was scheduled to be the only provider in the entire building at the time. And although she certainly made mistakes and didn't handle the things the way that we think she should have, she should have never been in that position. You know, she should have been, she should never have been the only provider in the building. She should never have been required to diagnose a pulmonary embolism. And so we approached it from not necessarily making her the bad guy or blaming her, but from why was she there you know, and what should have happened. That's that was our approach. And and the second piece to that, I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, we've talked a lot about this in our book. It, it isn't about saying all nurse practitioners are bad. Um, it was that she was thrown into a position she really wasn't trained for. And that's the responsibility of mercy. And so the second piece that I wanted to talk to you about so much is that here they had identified that she had, you know, nurse practitioner Thompson had made a number of mistakes on other cases and they had sort of deemed her as not doing high quality care. Well, I'm not saying the right probably words, but essentially they'd been worried about her and terminated her and then let her work 30 days out to finish out the shifts for which she had already been assigned on one of those last shifts is where she ran into Alexis Ochoa and misdiagnosed her and she died and Alexis died. And so the second question I had for you was sort of how can this go on when you identify someone who's really incapable of doing their job for whatever reason, whether it's a doctor, whether it's a nurse practitioner, how are these hospitals able to shield this and continue to do this? You know, I've, I've actually written quite a bit about that issue, and I'm sure it's not my original idea. I'm sure I stole it from somewhere, but I have in briefing compared the way airline crashes are investigated, the way medical errors are investigated. You know, if there's a plane crash by a commercial carrier, the National Transportation Bureau comes in, they do a thorough investigation. It's all a matter of public record. Everyone sees uh, what has happened. Everyone has access to that information. Contrast that with the way hospitals conduct investigation. Everything is privileged. You don't find out any information about any doctor or provider. Um, all that information is kept strictly confidential. And I think that is the reason airline travel is the safest way to travel and medical errors are the third leading cause of death in the United States. In Oklahoma, <clears throat> there are two privileges that control those sort of investigations. 
And we had, again, we had a judge that was going to look at the law. And we were fortunate in that the peer review privileges in the state of Oklahoma are written about doctors. This wasn't a doctor. And so while the hospital believed these investigations were going to be protected and were brutally honest in their internal investigation as a result of that, they weren't because it wasn't a physician and that these and the statutes that protect those investigations didn't apply. So we got all their internal documents with regard to investigation. That's where it was revealed that she had a long list of quality concerns, misdiagnosing, not making complete workups, misinterpreting test results, ignoring patient symptoms, working back-to-back 24-hour shifts with two different hospital systems, and they decided to fire her. And then we got access to internal emails where there's a, a conversation about, well, we, if we fire her for cause, we have to pay her 30 days. But if we just fire her without cause and let her work the rest of 30 days, we don't have to pay two people to do that work. And so they sent her a letter of termination that was to take effect a month after the letter. And it was her next to last shift that Alexis came in. And so that was a, an aggravating factor in, in the lawsuit. Also, we deposed the doctors who were part of the investigation. They said there were no problems. We had no problems with her. Her quality was fine. And then we get the documents where they were on the records saying, I will not accept any more patients from this person. She doesn't do a complete workup. And it was, it turned out to be a lot of really persuasive information. And again, it's because we had a good judge that was willing to look at the law. A lot of judges would have seen that document stamped peer review, and that had been the end of the inquiry. They would have said, well, that's peer review. You don't get it. This judge took some time, looked at the actual records, looked at the statutes, and correctly ruled that we should have access to that information. If there were more of those type of investigations that were made public, I really believe we would have a lot fewer medical errors. When they've terminated her and she went off to Iowa to work, they gave her a letter of recommendation because she wasn't fired for cause. And so they passed her on to another hospital system without telling anyone that she had had a long list of complaints. So I just really believe that, I mean, I understand the public policy argument about keeping these investigations confidential, but I think the public would be much better served if there were no sort of privileges, if all the investigations were conducted. In- well, it sounds very much like that Dr. Death case in which, you know, they just kept passing him from hospital to hospital. And, you know, it doesn't just happen with doctors. It happens with all sorts of different professionals. And I'm guessing maybe they're afraid they were going to get sued or something like that for not giving her a recommendation. Well, I guess, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't understand why they would have done that, um, but they certainly did. And the other thing that was frustrating, they they um, censured her for working her back-to-back shifts when Mercy was the second shift. They said, you can never do this again. Don't ever do this again. But they didn't have any complaints about her going to work for Baptist after working a 24-hour Mercy shift. And when we kind of challenged them in depositions about that, well, that's not our responsibility. Those are our patients, which I, I thought was very telling. But, yeah, they... Um, they didn't even notify Baptist that she was double booking, that she was going to work at Baptist after working a 24-hour shift at Mercy. Speaking of responsibility, that was something that I, the actually third aspect I wanted to talk to you about this case in, in that, you know, her supervising physicians sort of, number one, they knew she was working double shifts. Number two, I think she was even taking call it or working at different hospitals, so different Mercy sites, right? And what kills me is she didn't even know her supervising physician. She didn't know who 
he was. And when I compare that to there's a case, I'm sure you've probably heard pieces of it out of Minnesota, um, where there's a physician who got a phone call from a nurse practitioner he wasn't even supervising, had nothing to do with. And he was, I think, the admitting physician. And he said, no, that person doesn't need to be admitted. And um, the, had the information had been repeated to him incorrectly, basically, from the nurse practitioner. And, and so in a nutshell, he is being sued for responsibility for this death of this patient, even though he never saw the patient, he wasn't obligated to oversee the nurse practitioner. The nurse practitioner had a supervising physician elsewhere. So I guess that's my long way of asking, why didn't Brent face more um, backlash or more dings on his license? I mean, technically he was supervising her. And why was there, why were they able to separate that versus other areas of the country don't seem to be able to do that, even when they're a supervisory state? It was actually much worse than that because they wanted, they being Mercy, wanted to use more and more nurse practitioners. And Oklahoma has a specific statute that says a physician can only supervise two nurse practitioners. So they were recruiting physicians who had privileges at the hospital to sign off, sign the paperwork as being supervising physicians for people they'd never met, who they never worked with, nurse practitioners they never heard of. And, you know, to their to a couple of folks credit, we, when we got those emails, there were doctors that said, I'm not going to sign off on being a supervisor for someone that I've never met. But there were lots and lots of doctors that did. So this physician who was her supervising physician and also was in a um, director of the med- emergency department. He took the brunt of that. But there were a lot of doctors that had signed off as being supervising physicians for nurse practitioners. They didn't know their names. They never met them. You know, and I think Dr. <clears throat> Dr. Wilson, the main reason that he was assigned some liability was because he had responsibility for overseeing the, the emergency department. And he really had no, you know, I took his deposition, very nice guy, but had no concept of the educational limitations, the licensure limitations of the nurse practitioners and was operating under the belief that they had a, a broad scope of practice as opposed to being a very narrow scope of practice in a very small area of medicine. And so he thought if there was a nurse, I mean, I think he pretty much admitted this. If if you got a nurse practitioner, they can do anything. That's as you know. He did. He did say that in his deposition. He he said that they can do whatever any other ER doctor can do. Right. And, and these folks that haven't been to medical school, you know, they haven't had any sort of internship or residency or fellowship or anything. I mean, they might, and I think the way that the system is designed is for them to act in a very narrow scope to do very few things, which they have education and to do with oversight. But they were treating, they were credentialing these nurse practitioners as physicians to do anything a physician can do without supervision. And that's why Alexis died. I mean, it, it, Nurse Thompson made a lot of mistakes, but she should never have been there. Alexis died because Mercy was just wholesale substituting nurse practitioners for physicians. And, you know, this is happening uh, with corporations and academic centers, even teaching hospitals across the country. We are seeing this exact same scenario. And this is actually why we wanted to write this book, because just like maybe Dr. Wilson didn't know, maybe he knew, maybe he didn't know. um, We think that physicians all across the country, hospital administrators, patients, they don't know what nurse practitioner training is and that nurse practitioners and physicians are not equivalent. And so we just wanted to make sure that patients 
we're able to ask and say, are you a physician? If a patient isn't doing well, could you please call a physician to oversee my care? Because it's so interesting, Mercy being a multi-billion dollar corporation, and they have only a nurse practitioner as a hospitalist and a nurse practitioner in the ER. I mean, this to me is crazy. And this was not a rural area. They tried to make the argument that they were rural, right? But yeah, it's a funny story. And I know you guys are limited on time, but it's worth telling. When we were trying this case, Mercy brought in their national counsel, big, big firm from Atlanta, was not familiar with Oklahoma City at all. And during jury selection, he kept saying El Paso instead of El Reno. And he was saying, you know, when El Paso is an hour away. And finally, one of the prospective jurors, and I, I think it was actually a juror that ended up serving, said, Are you, do you mean El Reno? Because El Reno is not an hour away. You know, because the ambulance ride, it's an important point. They try to paint this as a rural facility. But when Alexis was transferred from El Reno to OU Medical Center in Oklahoma City, it was a 22-minute ambulance ride. So this wasn't a rural area. They had access to whatever they needed. They were just trying to save money. And, you know, when we were going through the – going kind of trying to figure this stuff out ourselves, it was interesting. Their defense was, well, she was a firefighter. She was a paramedic. She's worked in the emergency room as a nurse, you know, and that was, you know, when we're taking those definitions, okay, well, how many times do you order a test as a nurse? How many times do you, do you interpret a test result? How many times do you make a diagnosis? How many times, you know, and it just, the comparison doesn't hold up. I mean, nurses are important, provide an important function, but they don't decide what tests to run. They don't interpret those tests. They don't diagnose conditions. And and relying on her experience as an emergency room nurse to justify her being in charge of an emergency room and making diagnoses, especially, you know, diagnosis like pulmonary embolism, there just really wasn't an excuse for it. There wasn't a way to justify it. Or even if jury- you just know that somebody isn't doing well, you may not know what's wrong with them, but you see that they are unstable. They're getting worse. Everything you're doing, they're getting worse. And yet you continue to try to try different treatments, that's when you pick up the phone and you call somebody who knows more than you do. I'm a family doctor. I'm not an ER doctor. And I would never uh, assume to be and and never put myself in that position because I know I'm not qualified. But I can look at a person and say, whoa, this person is sick and I need to get somebody that knows what they're doing involved. And I think that's what was so egregious about this case, like 13 hours with a woman continuously decompensating and no, no, no action taken. Well, ironically, she did call the other doc at Oklahoma Heart twice. But what's fascinating about that, and that harkens back to this case out of Minnesota as well, the nurse practitioner didn't know the right information to provide. So what I found that was so interesting is when like the the hospitalist nurse practitioner who said, I wasn't told this, I wasn't told this, I wasn't told this in that note she later deleted. That's true of the cardiologist that uh, Nurse Thompson called initially because she sort of presented Alexis as an amphetamine abuse or toxicity case and didn't say more. And as she when she called a second time, like you're talking about, Rebecca, you know, she finally provided the information the doctor needed. And he just said, wow, we need a CT scan and we need a D-dimer. The shame is that while she knew she needed help, she didn't even know what kind of help she needed. She didn't even recognize the signs and symptoms of pulmonary embolism. And, it, you know, that's why that deleted note became so important in the, in the case is because she claimed that she advised the doctor at the heart hospital of all the signs and symptoms. And he said, she told me he had an elevated heart rate and one positive meth test. And 
that's exactly what she told the admitting nurse practitioner. And so when we're able to get access to that metadata and show the original note where she says, she told me she had all that heart rate, but she didn't tell me all these other textbook signs. It, it lined up perfectly with what the doctor at the heart hospital had said. This is what she told me. And so that's why having access to that sort of metadata and those audit trails is so important. Had it, had we not had that, it would have been really a battle of credibility between um, nurse practitioner and doctor. She, he said, she said, but, but, but when you had, when you see it written down in the note, she had these symptoms and she didn't tell, and the nurse practitioner didn't tell me about it. And then that recitation is precisely, and I mean exactly lines up with what the, the sworn testimony of the doctor from the heart hospital, it really kind of shows you what the truth is. Well, and you know, it's interesting. I've looked at uh, two other cases where children have died and they were, and they were either managed by PAs or nurse practitioners. And so far the records have been altered in, in those cases as well. And I find it fascinating that when you get into this metadata, which I think is really important for probably trial lawyers, although I don't know much about that, um, <laughs> but, I, but I think really getting the metadata, which is it's so important because in, in both cases, so really all three cases that I'm aware of where we've had this situation, they go back and they alter the record. And of course, we're trained as physicians not to do that. I mean, I'm on paper. And so my alteration of the record is two lines with a ruler. And I'm right. sure you're very familiar with that where you you can still see what we wrote. And it's like, oops, I, I made the this or that. I put down the wrong height or the wrong weight and crossed with two lines and then initial, and then you write the proper answer. Um, and generally, if I'm going to do what I call as a late entry, let's say I didn't fix a dictation or I made a mistake somewhere and I find it a year later, I put the new date like a year later. I say, this is a late entry error on this prior date here is what it should have said or, or whatever. So there, there's a trail of it where, yes, I did this here and here it is. Um, but I think essentially that's hidden in this electronic record system, except when you get into the metadata and they all, and I'm sure physicians probably alter it too. I haven't come across that yet. I'm sure it happens, but I think this idea that after a person dies, you go back and fix the record is really kind of scary to me. It is scary. And like you said, the way it used to be, it was all paper. So if there was a late entry or an altered entry, you could see it. Even if it was, even if they tried to hide it and it was, the note would be on a different page instead of in, in the chronos. So you, it was easy to see. The way that these electronic medical records are set up now, they can hide anything, you know, if they're willing to do it. And I always believed, uh, even after this case, that if I got a record and there was a note or uh, an op report or whatever, and it said version one of one, that that was it. There were no other versions because I thought that was at least one check on it. But now I've learned that they can print the third version of the record, third version, third version of the op report, and make it read version one of one. And so there is no way without getting the audit trail and the metadata to know, to authenticate the record, to know that this is the care that was received, actually received, as opposed to something that was put in the record years later. And that is... It's a fight. I mean, we um, we have multiple mercy cases right now, and in every single case, we have to file a motion with the court to get the audit trail. Now we're start we're getting you know uh, where it used to be we didn't always, but now I think the courts have kind of caught on to what it is, and we're getting those now. But it, at the time of this trial, you know, which dates back a few years, this was one of the first ones we got. Travis, you guys won a six million dollar verdict for the Ochoa family. 
And that's a lot of money. But then when I think about how much money Mercy makes, I wonder and I ask myself, does this even hurt them? Does it make them change their behavior? Is this going to hold these corporations accountable? What are your thoughts on that? I go back and forth. Um, you know, I um, I feel like what, this was mercy. This is this was a, a paid out of Mercy's operating uh, out of their self retention. It wasn't insured, and there were actual. And I think Doctor to give Doctor Wilson, who you know I gave a hard time this deposition, to give him some credit. Uh, I think he was actually instrumental in getting some policies changed with regard to supervision of nurse practitioners, and I think hopefully. Mercy is doing things a little differently now with regard to that. But, you know, it's one of those things in the closing argument of Ennis is probably in the minutiae that you don't really want to know about. But we had we had it set up to get into punitive damages. And I think if we got into that and we could have told the jury how much money that Mercy was saving by doing this, the verdict would have been very different. And the defense counsel said, well, you know, if you check punitive damage, you have to come back and do another trial. And, I, you know, and that that comments slipped past me at the time, you know, and I think looking back, if I had just said, you know, it's one witness, you've been here for two weeks, give me another two hours. And let, you know, I think they would have, because I, I believe that it warranted punitive damage. I believe the jury was headed in that direction, but they're human beings too. They have their own lives. They just spent two weeks in this trial, you know, and I think that was a key point that I wish if I could go back and do it differently. I would have, I would have addressed that. Are you allowed to say how much they saved? Uh, no, I don't think so. I am no, because it's not everything we talked about thus far is a matter of public record because it was okay. evidence admitted. The stuff that we were prepared to admit in the punitive stage, we didn't get to. Okay, fair enough. So I don't think I'm allowed to talk about that. But, so the idea being, though, if you had sought larger damages, maybe that would have made a larger impact on Mercy and made them change their ways. Well, maybe. that's the idea, but it's not larger. I mean, it's not a seeking. So there are two types of damages, right? There are compensatory damages that are designed to compensate the family for their loss. That's what the jury awarded. If we can show that the corporation acted with reckless indifference or with malice, then we can get into what's called punitive damages, which are intended to punish the defendant. And I think we were really close there. And if we had got to that point, we would have been able to show the investigative documents where they were still using nurse practitioners in the same way, we would have been able to show how much money they save. We would have been able to show how much money they make. We would have been able to argue, if you want to change this behavior, you have to hit this billion-dollar corporation hard enough for them to change. And so we weren't allowed to get into that because the jury did not find that they acted with reckless indifference. Can I ask just how else we should hold these hospitals accountable? Like in I, your think it's it. I think you just have to get, we have to take that next step and you have to be successful in convincing juries that they need to, it's not just about compensating the family, which they did, but it's about punishing the defendant. It's about changing behavior. And once you get past that hurdle and you're able to admit to the jury, to show the jury, this is a $6 billion corporation. They said, you know, they're doing this. They continue to do the same thing today. You know, we had testimony, got a testimony from one of the higher ups that they would hire. They're still doing the same hiring practices. You know, if we could have got that in the second stage of trial, I believe the jury would have awarded punitive damages. And, and that would have been a function of not of what it takes to compensate the parents of Alexis, but 
what it takes to change Mercy's behavior. And that would have been a much bigger number. Yeah, and I think it is going to take that. I can speak for myself and a lot of physicians that I know. We've often been pressured by administrators, by managers, by supervisors to practice outside of the correct bounds of medicine and our oath of medicine. And we're told, oh, just sign off and it'll be okay. And just work without functioning electronic health records and just work Mm. without a proper, like there's an obstetrician right now that's being sued because she delivered a baby when all the systems were down. And instead of taking responsibility for their systems to being down, the hospital said, well, the doctor shouldn't have delivered her if she thought it was dangerous. So, I mean, but this is the kind of behavior that is so common and it's, and if you complain or you say you're not going to do it, they fire you. And so then you have very little recourse. So I think the only thing we can do is to find these cases and try to bring them public and try to get accountability. I agree. And I think the, the, one of the most important steps to get to that point is to limit the privileges associated with investigations, because that's where you get, that's where you find out about Dr. Death. That's where you find out about all the other incidents that this nurse had. You know, if you can get, if we can make the investigations public, if we can get access to that information, then you can show a jury, Hey, you know, this wasn't her first rodeo. This, she had lots of other problems and they kept sending her back or they passed her on to a, 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 facility in Iowa and didn't tell them about this. You know, that's where I think you can really create damages for the system, for mercy system, for integrity system, for those sort of healthcare corporations, as opposed to focusing on individual actors. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank Mr. Travis Dunn for joining us to discuss this really important case. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to get our book. It's called Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Of course, subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel. And if you're interested in helping out, you can join Physicians for Patient Protection, our website, physiciansforpatientprotection.org. Thanks so much. 